Relationships Like the podcast, helping you design the relationship you want. With couples therapy costing a pretty penny, Relationship Psych gives you access to couples therapy insights without spending a dime. Tune in for discussions on communication, managing conflict, recovering from infidelity, attachment, and more. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist and couples therapist. A few of my favorite things are my husband, grapes, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Simply by listening, you're gonna get tools to help you and your partner create a loving and harmonious relationship that can withstand the test of time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek out a local couples therapist in your area. Today on Relationships Like the Podcast, we have Jolie Hamilton, who's a relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. She's a research psychologist, TEDx speaker, best-selling author, ASEX certified sex educator. Jolie also co-hosts the Playing With Fire podcast with her anchor partner, Ken. Jolie's been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, NPR, and The Atlantic. She's spent the past two decades studying and reimagining what love can be if we open our imaginations to possibility. Jolie helps people create non-monogamous partnerships that are custom built for their authentic selves, no more shrinking, no more pretending, no hiding required. So this week in my practice, I've had a lot of, a number of couples, either new people reach out to me because they're struggling with infidelity. Maybe they've opened their relationship and are struggling to process big feelings or people that are in monogamous relationships who are feeling struggling with feelings of abandonment and jealousy. And that's why I'm so excited for today's guest. And I just admitted to her off, off the air that this is a topic when we look at it from this angle, I don't know a lot about, I could know more about, I know something about it, but I could know more about it. If I feel that way, there's other people that probably feel that way too. And the topic we're talking about today is jealousy in relationships. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jolie Hamilton. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. I I agree. I want to say right off the bat, kudos to you for being a relationships therapist who knows that they haven't actually received enough training on jealousy because I've never met a therapist who didn't specialize in this, who actually had. And I've been through a therapist training program myself and yet nobody told me anything about it, except it doesn't feel good. So that's not really enough. We need more. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so excited for this conversation. So tell me a little bit about you. How come your academic research career took you to the field of studying jealousy? Okay, so I had I had a little incident. Um, I fell in love with someone I was not married to, and I I jumped. I leaped out of the monogamy pool into who knows we could do anything pool into polyamory. Now, my whole life's work is about that too. So we could talk about that. But in the meantime, um, this person that I fell in love with told me that he really loved my passion and intensity for all of life. And when he told me that I wanted to get it tattooed, I have this line of symbols down my back and I wanted to add that to them. So I did. And I had a translator work with, you know, what would be something that meant intensity for all of life? And the translator came back with a symbol that meant zealous, zeal you know, just the Greek word for jealous. Yeah. So the really, really like ridiculous answer is I tattooed the, the word jealousy on my back 13 years ago, and it's been following me ever since. And now <laughs> can't, you can't I, get it to come away from uh, behind you. It is truly it, following you everywhere. It is following me everywhere. And here, it, like I had, when I chose my dissertation topic, when I chose Everyone warned me. They said, if you choose to study jealousy, you will have to swim in that for at least five to seven years. Like, this is it. Are you yeah. really ready for that? I'm like, yeah, I'm already doing it. What's the difference? And for me, what has happened is that my life has provided me many reasons and opportunities to be very close to jealousy. And what I've noticed is that that's a good thing. That's actually a wonderful thing. It has given me an immense sense of just how unspoken our understanding of jealousy really is. Yeah. And I appreciate it now in a way I couldn't before. Okay. So it's, I mean, it sounds like it was your dissertation topic. And also like when you took that leap from falling in love with someone outside your marriage, you opened it up or you, or something yeah. like that, yep. you, you kind of took a 
leap of faith into the unknown abyss of who knew how it was going to go and likely experience some of those jealousy oh, feelings. Yeah. Oh, What's yeah. One early experience of jealousy that you remember that maybe it being a bit more challenging. Yeah. So one of the early experiences was that I, I had to deal right away with the complexity of having someone I was in love with having to figure out how to split his time. Like, what do we do? Um, cause love might, even if you believe love is infinite calendars are not. Mm. And so even though I was doing really well with jealousy in some aspects, I was struggling a lot when I would feel less prioritized and then I would fall into this trap. I would fall into a hole of jealousy and I could just land there and stay there for a long time because um, it reminded me of stuff. It reminded me of being an adolescent and feeling unchosen. And it reminded me of being a child and being sort of short shrifted when my baby brother came along. And it it reminded me of things. And I when I say reminded, I mean, it reminded my body of these things. <laughs> and, right. and it took years to actually figure out that what I was, what I was experiencing was, oh, this is, this is what I have to do. I have to get in there and, and work with my attachment wounds. And I have to work with my nervous system. And I have to figure out whether I want to confront jealousy mm. because in non-monogamy, confronting jealousy is sort of a known. We, there's a, there's a certain amount of well, you're going to have to, right? And so I knew I was making a conscious decision, but the thing I've come to realize since is that monogamy can't promise you any any freedom from jealousy. No. It's just a universal human emotion. So yeah, it's never really gone away and I don't expect it ever will. Okay, so just speak to that one for me for a second. Can you protect yourself from jealousy or eradicate jealousy as part of your like human emotional experience? Um, well, would you ask me that question about anger or sadness? And the answer is no. no, ever, right? So when people talk about eradicating or killing or curing jealousy, I immediately am suspicious, right? Because what they're telling me is that they don't want to be in touch with some of their, their humanity. Jealousy can be spotted in infants as young as five and six months old. So we're talking about an emotion that is hardwired into us for good reason, right? To de it's designed to connect us to our primary caregivers. Um, and that's out of Hart and Carrington's work and evolutionary psychology. Great. But then we grow up and jealousy sticks around. It's not like we outgrow it. And then when we attach to grown-up people who we love, it's really easy to accidentally find ourselves acting like our very survival is threatened. Right. And so it's for me, it's not a question of, can I escape or cure jealousy? But why would I want to? Because it served a purpose once and it's still serving a purpose now, but I do need to learn how to act as a mature human in relationships when it comes up. That yeah. part's still sticky. Yeah, and that's hard. And I think I see in my practice, a lot of people say things like, well, don't, like, when they don't want their partner to be jealous, they will say things like, well, just don't, just don't do that. Just don't have that emotion. And we do talk about, or I talk about how that's a normal emotion. And it's not so much getting rid of it. It's how do you handle it individually and as a team when it emerges? Because it's, yeah, my, my experience is I'm not going anywhere. Exactly. So, and my experience is that not only is it not going anywhere, but if we, if we suppress it, where does it go? <laughs> goes everywhere more right more. And, and try to hold a beach ball underwater yeah. what's gonna happen eventually it's gonna pop up and usually where you don't expect it and that's hugely problematic no matter what your relationship structure is jealousy popping up from the unconscious into your relationship means it's going to be a bit like a geyser and that's not what we're going for so when i'm working with people on jealousy i'm asking them to be present to the fact that it's yeah it's normal it is absolutely something we should talk about and it's ours. It belongs to us. My jealousy is mine and yours is yours. And while we are a team working with all of the stuff that shows up in our relationship, the most common thing I see happen when jealousy comes up is I point my fingers at you and I say, you stop acting a certain way so that I don't have to tolerate this feeling. Right. And that's a very limited um, option because it requires someone else to change their behavior for you to get relief. 
Right. So owning the emotion and letting it be okay without allowing it to drive every decision you make, that's the tightrope to walk. Yeah. Like that is an amazing, it is a tightrope to walk. And if someone's listening to that and they're like, yes, that is a tightrope. How do you even, how do you balance on that tightrope? Do you have any beginner tips for how to balance on it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like I said, I chose this as my dissertation subject, and then I have continued my research since. And so I, I interview people about their lived experience of jealousy. I I use the specific, I use the idiosyncratic. I, I like to go directly into people's stories of jealousy. Rather than count numbers, I go right into the depths of their stories, and then I sift them. So it's qualitative research. I sift out what are people doing with jealousy? And what has turned up is a five-part framework that appears to be how people who are successfully walking that tightrope, how they do it. What do they have in common? And they have things in common, which is great news for all of us. The first thing that they do is they can notice jealousy very early. They have a really early warning system. It's called a body. And their body, their nervous system um, has an experience and it sends a message. It sends a message in the form of sensation. And people who are dealing with jealousy successfully receive that sensation and identify, oh, that's jealousy. So they they notice it in their body. Now, people usually describe things like twisting or clenching or constriction or an upset stomach or cramps or tightness or heat or weight on their chest or sometimes electrical feelings, right? And I hear this all the time, these same type of feelings. And so if I ask you, what does jealousy feel like to you? You might not know, but if I ask you to remember the last time you felt in the throes of jealousy, those, those sensations might come right back to you even right now. Bookmark them. Notice yeah, that's, them. Even as we're talking, I was like jealousy, jealousy, and I was able to go back to the last time I experienced jealousy with my husband. Yeah. And I, in the moment, I can remember all of these sensations. It's more of I can remember the sensations coming over my body and going, oh, what is happening to me right now? And it was terribly uncomfortable. And I I can remember wanting to run away from those feelings because they came on strong. And it was the first thing that happened in my body. That was how I recognized it. I could feel the tension. Like it felt like electricity in my wrists. I'm like, gee, that's an uncommon um, place in my wrist to feel it, but okay. And in my chest and my neck, kind of like you're talking about sinking in my stomach and yeah, really tense overall. That's how I could remember feeling it. That's as you're talking, I was like, oh yeah, I do have a memory where I remember feeling that way. Right. So that sense memory is really precious because if you know that's what jealousy feels like when it shows up for you, then it doesn't have to make sense. Mm. So jealousy is jealousy is a feeling of threat, right? So it's, it's always going to be a triangle. Every time jealousy shows up, it's a triangle. It's about me, my beloved, and a perceived interrupter. So mm-hmm. I have a relationship and I perceive that there's someone who will interrupt it, whether that person is real or imagined, mm-hmm. but it is a person. And when that happens, if I if I have to assess the situation, like that's a slow responding system, but my body gives me this quick message. If I know that it's jealousy, now I have a decision to make. What am I going to do? And once I've identified jealousy, I can, I have some choice, but it's a small window because pretty quickly those sensations send us right into full threat. Yes. And once you're in full threat, well, most of us don't behave very well, me included. Like, yeah, no kidding. Even, even a, when you know, even when you like air quotes, know better, you can't override the threat system once the threat system has uh, taken over. Exactly. So People who are dealing with this more successfully, the next thing that they did that was really- was the second step? Yeah, the second step that it, it goes hand in hand, they named it. They're like, oh, I'm jealous. They could name that they were jealous. They could name it for themselves. And even better, if they could name it inside their relationship and inside their community or their support system. So if they were able to name it for themselves, so sometimes it's as simple as saying out loud, oh, I'm jealous. I'm jealous yeah. right now. Okay. And being able to talk about it with a partner, awesome. And even better, if it's normal to talk about jealousy in your community, 
Yay. Now, jealousy, some of the stigma is removed because jealousy is really twisted up, right? We're supposed to not feel any jealousy at all, but we're also supposed to feel a little jealousy because if we don't feel je any jealousy, then something's probably wrong with the relationship. There should be a healthy amount, the right amount. I've heard um, Effie Blue calls it the um, the Goldilocks amount of jealousy. I usually say like it's it's that just right amount of salt in food. Um, Dr. Maya Angelou has a great quote for it. It's Jealousy in love is like salt and food. A little bit enhances the savor, too much spoils the dish. Yeah. So that's tricky. We need to be able to talk about it. So if you've noticed it and you've named it and it's and it's normalized to the degree that we can name it in our community, okay, we're off to a good start. Mm -hmm. That's still only going to take us just so far. So right. from there, now it's about really digging in because jealousy is pernicious. And it, it's not just about naming jealousy, but then it's a complex emotion. So you got to pop the hood and find out what flavor is your jealousy? What is it made of? Because jealousy is actually made of a bunch of other emotions. It's not a single emotion. When you look at it, you're going to see things like fear, right? Because it's fear of loss of your connection. Right. But you're also going to see some mix of anger, sadness, shame, guilt, anxiety, um, anticipatory anxiety, like, like really deeply anticipatory, like, and then also grief, grief that seems un, it, like it doesn't even make sense to you or anticipatory grief, grief about something that isn't even lost. Yeah. So this mess of feelings, you can imagine if two different people were feeling jealous and one was feeling jealousy that felt more like rageful anger. And the other right. is feeling jealousy that looks like deep melancholic sadness those two might not even recognize that they're having the same emotional experience. But what they could do is potentially note both of them notice the triangle. And if the triangle's there, yeah, jealousy's present. Right. But that still doesn't help us deal with a really big problem because um, shame is attached to jealousy for a lot of us. Right. We're, we are, we're in a stuck spot culturally with shame because right from the time we're little, like it's depicted as, as monsters, like the cartoon faces are green and scraggy and like jealousy is not something we're supposed to be. We're told to dissolve it from us, to cure it, to get it away. And so how are we supposed to not feel shame about it? And if I feel shame about an emotion, now I've got this big old wet blanket on top of what I actually need to deal with. And often I find people won't even admit that they're feeling jealous because that would be like admitting that they're worried about their relationship. And right. that's hard to do too, especially if you don't currently have support in whatever struggles you might be having in your relationship. So yeah, it's so multi-layered that just these first couple steps are so, so important for everybody to understand that they can increase their skill level at that. And from there, at least they know what they're dealing with rather than accidentally imagining that their jealousy is, that they are completely at the mercy of their partner's behavior yeah. running all of their jealousy. Right. Okay. So if you're able to start with about tuning it and like noticing it, so yeah. noticing it in your body, naming it, then you said yeah. was three digging in. Three, three is actually, it is, it, it is digging in. I didn't actually get to it. It's so naming is like naming jealousy itself yeah. and all the stuff that's inside it. Got you got to really like name all those constituent emotions, right? Okay. The next one is about digging in though. It's, it's the narrative. What oh. story are you telling yourself about yeah. jealousy? What does it mean? What does it mean that I'm jealous? What does it mean that my partner's not jealous? What does it mean that I struggle with jealousy? What does it mean about the strength or weakness of my relationship? What does it mean about my worth as a human or as a partner? Right. The stories we tell ourselves about our jealousy are far more impactful than any just raw jealousy that we feel. And right. it's hugely problematic because it's often attached to self-worth issues and insecurity. And that makes sense because, and we didn't, do something that I usually do right at the top. We didn't differentiate jealousy from envy, but they're two different things. Tell me the difference. Okay, so envy can live inside jealousy, but here's how you tell the difference. Jealousy is always a triangle. 
And envy is a dyad. Envy is two points. So jealousy is that triangle we described. And envy is, it's me longing to be what you are or longing to have what you have. And so if this perceived interrupter appears and I compare myself to them and find myself wanting, I may be envious of the perceived interrupter at the same time that I am jealous about my love bond being interrupted. Right. So now I can add envy to that pile. And when we introduce the whole concept of comparison, now we're into, yeah, what's the story I'm telling about this jealousy? Is mm -hmm. it, does it mean good things or bad things? And this is a part where a lot of people have no idea that they are telling themselves a story about right. jealousy. And often this stops them from ever even bringing it up with their therapist. Um, a lot of people don't name it or they, or they, they, they smush jealousy and envy all together and they kind of shove it into the corner. And that's why when I'm talking to therapists, I'm often um, reminding them to bring it up, ask about jealousy. Jealousy is a lot like sex. We often just don't ask directly about it. We wait for the client to bring it up, but they, they don't know to bring it up. They don't know that it's okay to bring it up. So mm -hmm. we have to actually ask. And often we have to do some psychoeducation about what jealousy is mm -hmm. so that they can start to even understand that that might be what's going on. Right. Yeah. Complicated. So, and I think that meaning that you give it is so important, like so many different things. If I'm thinking in my head, okay, one person comes in and I'm saying, I'm jealous, but I know I can say this to my partner and we can talk it through. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a whole different experience than saying, I'm jealous. I can't believe I feel this way. Maybe there's something wrong with me. How come it keeps popping up everywhere? And yep. those two different experiences are going to have such different meaning and such a different impact on that person. A hundred percent. And some people have some, some relationships where they rarely feel intense jealousy. It might happen in passing, or perhaps they just don't actually have a lot of um, instances where jealousy will happen. Like, I mean, during COVID, when everybody was kind of trapped inside, I saw a decrease in the reports of jealousy. And then we opened up and I saw an increase in reports of jealousy, or at least the actions of it. Um, but some people have some relationships where they're like, yeah, it doesn't really come up. But then they turn and look at other relationships. Look at your relationship with your parents or your close friends or your children even. And you might find, or work colleagues, teammates, you might find that jealousy is coming up there. Your connection to your your coach and your teammates connection to your coach might feel like jealousy. Um, the connection between siblings and a parent can absolutely be jealousy. So any place might harbor jealousy. And if you can deal with jealousy well in one area, awesome. I celebrate that. Let's use those skills then in other areas, because often we have a weaker spot as well. Right. Wow. Okay. As you're talking like jealousy in other areas, maybe a sibling with your parents. And I was like, Oh wow! Why? Why I probably struggle with this feeling because I all of a sudden was hit with like, wow, I struggled with jealousy growing up big time with my sibling, and it was like a little light bulb just went off in my brain. And like, I, while I have recognized as an adult, like struggled in jealousy with team or with coaches or things like that, that connection back to family of origin, I'm like, yeah, okay, this makes sense. I right. see how, and then I see how probably not dealing with it or understanding it as a kiddo would make it hard to deal with and understand as an adult. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why I I love when people can look back and say, oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I struggled with this to some degree. And this could be in two different ways. My In my research, what I noticed is there was there were some people who said their parents tried to keep everything fair, everything fair. And that can be problematic for some kids because fair doesn't necessarily mean it's meeting the needs of the children, right? right. Because they're different humans. Yeah. And then there were, was another group of people where there was clearly preference given and not in any sort of equanimity way. It was just clear preference. And either one of those could cause trouble with people being able to integrate the idea of jealousy. And so now you have this early patterning on top of the hardwiring from your, your evolutionary DNA. And then you pile onto it, whatever happens in adolescence, which is almost always, I mean, middle school, it's, I mean, that's rough. And then you get to your adult relationships and especially the ones before your prefrontal cortex is fully formed. Right. And you've got all that history. So now here I am in my mid forties and I'm like, oh my gosh, why am I still dealing with jealousy? But when I calmly look at the situation, I think, oh, because I have a lifetime's worth of jealousy to unpack as well 
as the current situation that's actually happening and it's right. all relevant right so very relevant when you said middle school i was like oh my my young self in middle school forgot i forgot for a moment about how jealous middle school high school you know was until you said that i was like oh my poor younger self was so jealous uh, yeah. the jealousy was often though of my same sex peers and yep. the relationships they had so the jealousy looked maybe the, the triangles were different but yeah. the feelings i experienced were so the same and i felt the current just you said middle school my whole body was like yeah recognizing that one that's it and and i love that you you remembered the triangle and the reason the triangle is important is because of course in those early especially those pubescent years when we're all just like washed in hormones envy is running rampant too and so now you have these these little envy machines these little comparison machines running around with no idea what to do most of us completely under resourced and on top of it we wind up with in school all these triadic relationships all these little triangles that just sort of naturally form because jealousy is archetypal it's a it's a pattern of readiness waiting mm -hmm. right it is a universal experience so there it is it's going to be there the question is what do we do with it because my experience of studying it all this time tells me that jealousy is actually neutral it's not necessarily bad it's neutral right just like all other emotions right the core emotions we talk about we say that they're neutral they're information but even the apa tells us that jealousy is that this is how the definition starts off in their own dictionary a negative affective state really anger does not get this treatment anger gets the line anger can be a productive and healthy emotion so okay. tell me you have a cultural complex without telling me you have a cultural complex it's written we, in the dictionary it's written right there in the yeah. apa right like so this helps me understand why we're not trained to deal with jealousy and why we don't have a national conversation about jealousy right. because we imagine that jealousy is inherently negative but all archetypal things which includes all the big emotions they're neutral and they have they have a positive and negative expression so right. a positive expression of jealousy would be things like 30 percent of my participants experience jealousy as sexual arousal Ooh. right so that can be pretty juicy and many many people double down and strengthen their bonds when they feel jealousy so they actually mm -hmm. turn toward or they go get a therapist or they move toward the work so it can be very inspiring as well right. but when we imagine that it's negative often we either pack it away or we turn our back on it or we blame someone else for the feeling and those ways of working with jealousy they blame jealousy when really jealousy was there to be an indicator that you care about someone and that there's time to put attention into it and that someone might be you like it's, it's not always about i care about my partner sometimes it's i care about me and this relationship actually does not offer me the security and assuredness that i need yeah but the jealousy is information yeah. no matter which direction that goes yeah okay so like we're going through these steps i'm loving our conversation can we do four what is step four yeah. if you're on the tightrope the five park frameworks working through jealousy what are four and five yeah so four is i mean this is right this is your wheelhouse it's navigating needs i need yes, to know I need, yeah i need to know what it is i need i need to be able to differentiate that from my wants because i i can have some needs and i can have some wants and i don't necessarily need to have all my wants met and then i need to know how to ask for my needs to be met and then co-create creative solutions with my partner to get those needs met because my partner is not actually a need filling machine and so we need to get creative about like how do i get my needs met so you mean your partner isn't just going to know your needs they're not only going to not just know your needs but they don't actually have to meet them all Oof. Not tell me more this is we're yeah. on step four right yeah we're on step four and actually we'll get to step five but that's that's advanced learning so <laughs> which is good it's it, aspirational let's say um i love the navigating needs step coming from a non-monogamous perspective because yeah one of the basic core ideas around consensual intentional conscious non-monogamy is that i have multiple needs and asking one person to fill all those needs is first off a very recent human invention 
Very, very recent. Up until about 150 years ago, we lived much more communally. This idea that our partner is going to be our end-all be-all is like 50 to 75 years old. Marriage for love is only about 150 years old. You can look at Stephanie Kuhn's work for this. Um, so right now, we tend to make one person be our source of so much. And from a non-monogamous perspective, a lot of people will say, okay, well, I don't want to do that. So I'll have more partners and I'll, I'll, I'll spread that out which is kind of cool, except it can start feeling like you're at a vending machine trying to get your needs met. And I'll just pull a bunch of levers rather than one lever for a great, big, huge snack. I'll get a lot of snacks. Either way, it it tends to, it sort of <laughs> commercializes how we're getting our needs met. It turns our needs into these this thing that we have to get met and we have to get met from the outside when in fact, a lot of stuff is actually work that we can do for ourselves or ways that we can resource really creatively. I mean, we can start by doing nervous system regulation work. We can start by doing um, self-expression work. We can just be involved in communal being like being held communally. So there are so many ways, but we aren't usually given all of those options right off the bat. Most of us were modeled like one way you grow up, you find somebody will put up with you and then you stick it out. And if that works for you and you're getting your needs met, awesome. But for so many of us, we're not. So learning how to navigate your needs is key for everybody in every relationship structure. And every relationship structure has some issues about how that might not go well too. And, and I think what's really important like that you said is I, I kind of preface this with a comment because so many people say like they should, if they love me, they would know my needs. And I loved what you said about like, they're probably not going to be able to meet them all. And I think probably, and I'm making some jumps here, so you correct me if I'm wrong, and I think you said this to some degree, like it doesn't matter the structure, monogamy, non-monogamy, there's going to be needs you're not going to have met and part of internal work, figuring out what that means for you and what, how do you, how do you handle those needs within yourself? And maybe there's ways to express or get some of them kind of ish met. Yeah, with partners, but it sounds like that's a normal part of relationships is that sometimes not all your needs will be met. Right. So this is where we shift from the idea that um, we're not a child anymore. Right. So when we're children, ideally, we would all be offered an immense amount of unconditional love. And I mean, I have seven kids and I know I've dropped the ball more than a few times. So my own children have not been met with nothing but a reign of perfect unconditional love. Everybody grows up and winds up with some gaps and wants desperately to have those gaps filled. And often those become things we look for in our adult partners. And yet, of course, I mean, we're just complicated and we're multiple and our partners have a life going on too. To think that they can always meet all of our needs is just, it's unrealistic to imagine that. Not to mention the fact that they can't read our minds. So we need to be able to actually know what we need and name what we need in some, and then, and then I would say, and there needs to be a question mark at the end of our sentences, yeah. not just stating our needs, but actually asking, but also a relaxed, a relaxed grip. And this is, this is challenging for me. It's challenging for my clients. Just because I have a need doesn't mean it, it can be met right now. So no, it's hard I, for me too. <laughs> so right. hard work with that every day with clients, but it doesn't like, doesn't mean in my life when I don't have a need that I want to be met immediately that I can't go to like feel anger or fury or rage or hurt or abandonment. If my partner doesn't meet my needs, exactly. but it's also kind of that flexibility in my head somewhere that isn't always accessible to be able to step back. Maybe in a moment after I've calmed down and my prefrontal cortex has come back online and be able to say, Okay, I guess, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt less maybe in the moment. Right, right. So that's, I take a bottom-up approach here and I, I, I think, okay, and I was very late to my body. Like I seriously, I think I just arrived in it a few years ago. Um, but once I realized that I, if I started bottom-up, if I started with my nervous system regulation first, that I would be able to access my quite, um, competent logic and, and rationale, but only if I did the bottom up work first, because when your threat bucket is full and whose isn't today, right? Your threat bucket probably runs pretty full. Yeah. 
And then you go through things like a pandemic and raising a family and, you know, all of a sudden homeschooling your children and all this stuff. And the threat bucket gets super full. So if your threat bucket is full and now any need, even a small one isn't met, that can totally push you over into dysregulation. And at this point, now my opportunity is to turn to my partner. Absolutely. But they may not be able to meet my need because their threat bucket may also be full. And so there are a variety of ways I might work with that situation. But the thing I most need to know is what's my, what is my go-to plan for, ooh, I am at, I am at a threat state. I have a very narrow window when I've passed out of my window of tolerance, when I'm right at the edge, right into hyper or hypo arousal, I have a really narrow time when I can say, let me do something about that. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I need to be calm all the time, but if I want to return to homeostasis, what can I do to return myself? Now, that might be going and asking for a hug and looking for co-regulation. It might be asking for reassurance. It might be asking for help. Um, it might be actually saying no to something. It might be rejecting the idea that I need to go meet somebody else's need right now. Mm-hmm. All of those are options, but what I notice is it's a pretty narrow window because once I've gone too far out of my window of tolerance, now I'm going to be reacting with my least mature parts out front running the show. And I mean, we all are familiar with what that looks like and feels like, and we can all rationalize why it happens, but who wants to feel that way? And so my clients are often putting themselves in the position of like, I know that's going to happen. So how do I resource myself? How do I give myself tools? And one of the tools we talk about is I want you to have a plan, a nervous system regulation plan. And it needs to be just three things you do. And it needs to be like able to fit on a sticky note because you need to carry it in your pocket and have it stuck on your mirror and on your fridge all the time until this becomes completely ingrained habit. Mm-hmm. And whether that is, you know, a breathing technique or going for a walk or I use neurosomatic intelligence. That's my particular modality that I prefer. But whichever one it is, it needs to be super accessible to you. Because when something like jealousy happens, I get thrown into hyperarousal or I drop into hypoarousal, right? I fall into a state that now I can't I can't access rational thought. Right. So I've got to have really easily accessed tools. And if we're lucky, one of those options is to turn to a partner and ask for support, but that's not always available. Sometimes we're at work. Sometimes they're at work. Sometimes we're unpartnered. Sometimes they're just emotionally unavailable mm-hmm. for their own reasons. Yeah. So we have to be able to resource ourselves multiply in order to be able to flexibly meet the demands of a modern life. Yes. And like, this is so hard to do making, getting aware of your nervous system, making a plan. And you might feel, res- maybe you're listening, feeling resistant to this and it's hard to think of regulating your emotions. Maybe you might think, oh, I don't need to. And as we're sharing, I was just remembering this time before my husband and I were married and he kissed another girl on the cheek and it made me infuriatingly jealous. And I raged at him. Like I got infuriatingly mad and I felt like he deserved it. And I shouldn't need to be accountable for any of my reactions after he kissed this girl on the cheek. And later he was very upset with my behavior because I raged at him and screamed at him and I'm pretty sure this all happened in public. Like it was certainly not my best self. Um, And I was initially really resistant to having to look at how to regulate my own nervous system in these moments of jealousy or feeling like I was going to be abandoned was a big trigger in my life, which I think many people can relate to. So I'll share that. Um, But what I recognized later is when I committed to working on my own variation of a nervous system plan, learning how to regulate how I was feeling so I could name I feel and communicate it in a centered way to my partner. He was able to respond to me with so much more care, love, uh, attention, affection, and my needs were so much more met when I could be approaching him with my feelings from a grounded place in my nervous system. So I had to really get clear on like, what was the benefit to creating a nervous system plan? And what were the cons to like not creating a a nervous system plan? Because I was resistant to that. Like I was already a therapist and I was so resistant to doing it. But I'll I'll tell you now, like, I can't remember the last time I yelled at my husband and I can count. I know I'm, you know, with like 98% certainty, you know, he's got a little bit of variability. He's not a perfect person, but if I come to him with my feelings in a grounded way, I'm reasonably sure most of the time he's going to be there. 
Right. But when I was coming at him from a dysregulated nervous system, I, he was most reliably not going to be there. Right. And, and now you have, you've got two nervous systems that are now using their best tools, yeah. which are not, not, they're not ideal because that's now you've thrown each other off. I resisted this so much too, Amber. I really, it was, I felt like it was like kids work. Like something like I must already have this under control. And one of the tricks for me was to start noticing. I just started using this analogy. I would picture who's got the microphone right now. And, and what I would do when I was doing like an after action review in my head of like how righteously indignant I had been, I would just ask myself, like, who had the microphone? And if that person was under the age of 25 in me, I'm like, oh, well, that's not who I want to be. I'm a grown woman. I want right. to behave in a different way. And, and then I let myself off the hook. I had to make it okay that I was basically going back to the beginning and yeah. learning again, because my parents weren't able to provide me with this. They just weren't. Right. They, they were not well-resourced this way themselves and they're dead now. So I can't even go to them and ask, Hey, could you, could we talk this through? It's not that. So I let myself off the hook and that was what helped me go back and say, okay, I'm going to spend the next year or so basically treating myself like a toddler (laughs) whenever, whenever I'm not acting in my, in my absolute most logical self, I just assumed that I had a toddler running the stage. Yeah. And it was, it was the gentlest, kindest thing I could do for myself because, you know, I had my PhD at this point, like, like, I was supposed to like, yeah, I've got it all figured out. It was when I decided to give myself the leeway of some dedicated time to reparenting myself, Yeah, which has not, you know, it's not like I'm done. I'm never going to be done. I'm always working on it. But that was, that was the time I needed to take it from, okay, my go-to reactions are over the top or complete depression, like falling completely into depression because it could be either direction. So now my go-to reactions offer me a way back into Okay. Like you said, okay, maybe, maybe this, maybe this isn't actually the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And even when it is the worst thing in the world, now I can just ask for help. Yeah. Which didn't feel possible before it didn't feel possible. And it did. I, I resonate when you said some of your clients are like, they should just know if they really loved me, they would know. And that is us desperately asking our parent to love our toddler self, our infant self, right? That's not because rational people understand that our, our, our partners aren't mind readers, but we did expect our parents to be. Right. And our parents may have even tried to be, but nobody's perfect. So that's a huge clue for me. Whenever, whenever someone says, you should just know. Okay. Does that get, you know, is it working though? Yeah. It's usually it's, a, it's the end of a long pattern of it not working. Yeah. And when jealousy is concerned, often this will turn incredibly heated yeah. really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Super fast. Yeah. So you said step five was like aspirational, but if we're going to get aspirational just for a second, what is the yes. fifth, fifth part of the five-step framework for working with jealousy? Okay. It is this, it's nurturing compersion. So Ooh. Yeah. So compersion is a term coined in polyamorous circles in the 1990s, um, but it's not just for polyamory, not at all. Compersion, C-O-M-P-E-R-S-I-O-N. It means joy for another's joy. Even if that joy doesn't have anything to do with you, it's just joy for their joy, happiness, sympathetic happiness, right? It'd be like when I feel so happy watching my dog, like when I get home and my dog is so happy I'm home and then I get happy watching his happiness, watching is his that happiness. what it is? It is 100% like that. And then we expand it, right? So in the polyamorous world, that would expand right up to my partner is receiving romantic attention from someone else. Can I practice even if I'm feeling jealous, can I also practice noticing where I'm happy for them? And some people don't, and they don't feel compersion and that's okay. Or they don't feel compersion in those senses. They, they do feel it for their puppy. They maybe feel it for children. They maybe even feel it for their friends, but maybe they struggle. You don't have to experience compersion around your partner having other romantic connections, but compersion 
in important relationships gives us the opportunity to stop trying to crush or suppress jealousy and just say, even when jealousy is present, if I can also look toward compersion and search myself for hints that I'm also experiencing some joy for their joy, well, I can then switch back and forth between like, well, one of these feels okay and one doesn't. And that's a little bit easier than just being lost in a mire of jealousy. Mm-hmm. I say it's a practice because it really is. It's not like we're not taught this. We're not trained this. This is, in fact, we're told we should react exactly the opposite to this by most conditioning we get. But here's how it might look for me in my life. If I'm at a party and my partner's standing across the room and um, my partner is my anchor partner, we happen to be married and um, we raise children together. And I see him across the room and we have very clear relationship agreements, like incredibly clear. Um, I trust him. I would trust him with my life, but even more importantly, I trust him with my heart. He's across the room and he is engaged in a dynamic and super, super happy discussion with somebody I know he would find attractive. And I'm watching him and he's, he's exuding this joy. And I'm noticing that this is, oh, the person's, yeah, the person's kind of flirting with him too. Okay, cool. This is interesting. For me, I have in that moment a a time when I can be both experiencing my fear that my connection might be interrupted and at the same time notice that, oh, I see what shape he's making with his hands and I see his mouth moving. Oh, he's talking about physics. Yep, yep. (laughs) Talking about photons right there. He is very happy. And when I notice something like that, I do feel this welling up of, oh, this man who loves his physics, but decided for the good of our family to work in computer engineering instead is feeling something really yummy. And he's getting some yummy like attention from somebody that he would find attractive. And that brings me joy. And mm-hmm. so I let those two things sit next to each other and I practice being multiple. Mm-hmm. Cause you can be multiple. Exactly, exactly. Yes. So I say it's aspirational because I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, I just have to be okay with everything. No, 100%. Julie did not say you have to be okay with everything. Um, It's really important to distinguish this from my partner um, going out and starting to hit on other people outside of our relationship agreements. And I'm supposed to be happy for him. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Right. Talking about inside your relationship agreements. And I'm talking about when you are well-resourced. If you're not well-resourced, this will be harder to achieve. But um, Dr. Marie Tuin has done some amazing work on the factors that can help facilitate more compersion in our life. And so there is some research being done on how we can increase compersion. And I love that because most of the time we in psychology tend to focus on the, the, the rough stuff. And so it's nice that somebody's out there doing the work on the, the happier stuff. And um I guess the last thing I would say about step five is the most common thing I hear from people when they've started to hear about non-monogamy, and it is popping up in all of our practices more and more, is um, just stop feeling jealous. Just like, could you just feel compersion? Just turn your jealousy into compersion. (laughs) And I want to officially say, do not do that. Do not attempt to do that. Do not tell anyone to do that because jealousy is not the raw material of compersion. The raw material of compersion is joy. Mm -hmm. And so if you want your partner to feel more joy, we need to fuel joy. And if you want to reduce the impact of jealousy, then we need to solidify our agreements. We need to solidify our connection and offer our partners reassurance in ways that actually land for them. And so these are two separate things. Thank you for saying that. I think that was really important to differentiate how different those things are. Yeah. Okay. So you're just a wealth of knowledge could like, you have so much to say. We skimmed one, one topic. There's so many topics that I know you could talk about. And so if people are really loving your wisdom, the way you present information, want to learn more from you, where can they follow you, find you, continue learning from you? Yep. The first thing to do is if you heard this and you were like, whoa, I need to know more (laughs) about this non-monogamy thing because I like relationships, but this is a sort of open question or it's been brought to my attention. Go to joliquiz.com, J-O-L-I-Q-U-I-Z.com. It's a 10 step. It's a 10 question quiz. I developed it out of my doctoral research and my work with clients and my personal work. 
It's designed to help you figure out whether opening is even a good idea for you. So it'll put you on a scale from, oh, hell no, to, yeah, let's go. Let's figure out how to do this well. And whatever the outcome, I want you to take the invitation at the end and come to my next salon on about a monthly basis. I run a free salon where I talk about the five pillars of opening up well, which does not mean opening up everything all at once and just opening Tinder and having a free for all. There, That is lighting a fire <laughs> to your relationship. I want you to actually carefully untangle stuff. So go to joliequiz.com, take that and follow my work. And if you're interested in my jealousy work specifically, then I want you to follow me on Instagram and TikTok because I'm just now building out my latest work on jealousy. And it is, if I may say so myself, pretty spectacular because it takes the research and combines it with a mythological archetypal perspective on what we actually do with jealousy. So you can follow me there at Dr. D-R-J-O-L-I, Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton. So we'll link those links to the show notes. And I just want to say if in my, in my practice, like obviously I'm a psychologist and when you see people in your practice, they're usually coming because there's a problem. So I have a skewed sample that I'm dealing with. But one of the things I see in my practice as a problem is people that don't open well. They mm-hmm. maybe do any research they or they read a book and they dove into the deep end and then were left picking up a lot of pieces and trying to repair a lot of damage that happened. Not because either person tried to do anything wrong yeah. and they really love each other still, but there's just so, so, so much damage and hurt and pain. And so my, my biggest wish for you is if you're like, yes, I am curious go check out resources like she's offered, take a quiz, get really informed by people that are experts in this field, maybe practicing themselves. And if, and if they're not practicing themselves or at least dedicated in an expert way and their professional life to this, um, to doing this well, I would say I would not be the person to go to, to open this up because this isn't something that I'm really well trained in. I think there's so many other people that are much better trained in how to do that. And I think it's just, I can deal with the aftermath but the, the, the foreground, I just, my wish for everyone is if they're going to give that a whirl, please protect yourselves and your relationships by doing it in a way that is thoughtful and responsible. And I have no other words for what to do with it, but yeah, that's my wish for you. Yeah. Do it gently. Do it gently. There are a million ways to do this badly. And I, I have very strategically built a, a good arc to follow, which doesn't mean everybody takes the same path. But there, you will stumble upon one million things you didn't know to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and so then that's normal. So get yourself some community right away. Yes. <laughs> that's what I, wh- whatever form that takes, get yourself some community right away. All right. If there's one thing people take away from this, what do you hope it is? Jealousy is neutral until yes. you decide to act on it. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.